0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started.
1: It's a pleasure for us to introduce another new member of the Bench Talk team, Scott Miller, a professor of astronomy, physics, and mathematics here in Kentucky at Maysville Community and Technical College. He's taught all across Kentucky at the University of Kentucky, Transylvania University, the University of Louisville, and Jefferson Community College. We're very happy to have him as another member of the Bench Talk team, so why don't you take it away, Scott? We live in a very stressful world, it seems, work family obligations, and then there is all that information pouring in from all directions thanks to different media we access. When I'm feeling a bit stressed, I find it quite relaxing to step outside under a clear, star-filled sky and just look around. As September melds into October, darkness continues to come on earlier and earlier, making it ideal for contemplation under the night sky. Dinner is out of the way, and Unwinding from any type of media with cooler temperatures in the air can really recharge the batteries. Early in the evening before it gets too dark is sometimes best. Fewer stars to deal with to make things easier to spot. One object I like to look for each night is that of the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The Dipper is found low in the northwest at this time of the year, so scanning the horizon might show it as if it is sitting on the horizon itself. The front two stars of the Dipper are called the Pointer Stars, as a line through them, starting with the one closest to the horizon, allows one to draw a line to find the North Star. The North Star is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge, I know, for example, that when I step out on my front porch, the direction I'm looking at is generally north. While looking at the dipper, I notice its handle is curved. Following that curve leads to a fairly bright star that is in the western sky at this time of the year. That star is called Arcturus. One follows an arc to get to Arcturus. Arcturus is at the base of a diamond-shaped constellation known as Boötes, which extends up from Arcturus away from the western horizon. But to the left of Arcturus, another bright point of light catches our eyes. That is Jupiter, the largest of the planets of our solar system. As October continues, it will be seen setting sooner and sooner after sunset. Around the 10th of October... The thin crescent moon will join it, making for a pretty sight. Continuing my sweep, another bright point, a bit dimmer than Jupiter, but brighter than the stars in that part of the sky, can be seen. Almost due south is the planet Saturn. Saturn follows Jupiter in size, but is farther from us, so it is dimmer than Jupiter because of this greater distance. But its golden color makes it stand out a bit from the color of the stars near to it. Just below Saturn is a figure of stars that looks sort of like a teapot, with spout and handle. That is the constellation Sagittarius. Just to the right of Sagittarius is an S-shaped group of stars, sort of lying along the horizon. That is Scorpius, with its bright star Antares marking its heart. Antares means rival of Mars. So, it is comparison time. Continuing on, left of Saturn is a ruddy point of light, again outshining the stars in its part of the sky. Mars, the red planet, shines brightly in the south-southeastern sky. Mars is smaller than Earth, but closer to us than Jupiter, and its closeness makes it stand out in the night sky. But as the year continues and Mars is seen more and more in the western sky, it will become noticeably dimmer than now because our distance from it is grown as we travel in our faster orbit around the sun. Mars and Teres, Mars and Teres, which is brighter, which is redder? Only a look of the night sky can tell. Continuing to turn left, the eastern sky now lies ahead, and a couple of star patterns may be visible. There is a W-shaped pattern a bit to the northeast. That is Cassiopeia. She is pictured as a queen sitting in her throne. Just below Cassiopeia, or more directly east, lies a large square of stars, the Great Square of Pegasus. Yes, the same winged horse that symbolizes the Derby Festival is represented in the sky as well. The square is its body. The rest of the constellation is best seen with the help of a star map. Another geometric shape of stars is found high overhead at this time of the year. It is called the Summer Triangle. It is not a constellation, but it is made of three bright stars from three different constellations. Under dark skies away from city lights, a band of light passes through it, extending down toward the spout of the teapot in Sagittarius. Steam rising out of the teapot, across the top of the sky and on in the direction of Cassiopeia, marks the Milky Way. The Milky Way is actually marking part of the disk of our own galaxy within which we are embedded. We are not at the center of our galaxy, but being in the disk means we can see its stars in all directions, both near and far. Planets, stars, constellations and even a galaxy, lots to help reduce the day's stress on a cool autumn evening.
0: Imagine you walk into your favorite restaurant and the host gives you the menu and they tell you, oh, we've got a new menu out now. Hope you like it. And you examine the menu and on one page it says genetically modified meals and on the other page it says non-genetically modified meals. Which page are you going to select your food from? How do you feel about eating genetically modified food? Well, if you eat a normal American diet, I can tell you now that you're already eating a lot of genetically modified food, whether you like it or not. Processed food like candy, chips, snacks, crackers, as well as other foods we typically call junk food, they probably contain genetically modified corn or soybean products. For instance, here are some foods that contain corn, Twinkies, Chicken McNuggets, non-dairy creamer, cheese Whiz ketchup margarine salad dressing mayonnaise cake frosting frozen waffles even vitamins they all contain corn products and corn is mostly genetically modified researchers can now determine how much of the carbon in our body comes from corn because corn grabs onto a carbon that is a little bit different than what other plants grab onto. And it turns out that more than half of the carbon in Americans' bodies is derived from corn. More than half of our carbon, half of that carbon is from corn. Now, carbon is the most prevalent chemical element in our body, other than hydrogen and oxygen, because water is made from H2O, hydrogen and oxygen. Other than water, our body is mostly carbon. And if you eat a normal American diet, that means that most of that carbon in your body is from corn. Until about 40 years ago, the staple food here in the United States was wheat because we ate a lot of pasta and bread. But now the American staple crop is corn and that's because corn is used in junk food and Americans eat a lot of junk food. And then when you talk about soybeans, something like 10% of the calories we eat comes from soybean, especially soybean oil, and 94% of all the soybeans produced in the United States are genetically modified. So 94% of the soybeans are genetically modified, and then 92% of all the corn, the field corn, is genetically modified, 92% of corn. So, if you drink soda pop, it probably contains high-fructose corn syrup, which is not only made from genetically modified corn, but it's synthesized using enzymes derived from genetically modified bacteria or yeast. Since our gasoline has some ethanol blended into it, you could also consider your gasoline to be genetically modified since ethanol is primarily derived from corn. First, I should remind you of what it means when a plant or an animal is genetically modified. What does genetic modification mean? There are different definitions of genetic modification, but most researchers will agree that it basically means that genetic modification is when individual genes of interest have been moved from one organism into another organism using laboratory techniques other than the natural process of mating or natural recombination that occurs in everyday life. So the varieties of plants that are generated with traditional plant breeding techniques like cross-pollination and self-pollination and asexual propagation of plants, that's not genetic modification. Not in my book anyway. Now, representatives of the biotech industry might tell you that... Oh, our ancestors have been genetically modifying plants for thousands of years. That's not really using laboratory techniques, so that doesn't fit my definition and most people's definition of genetic engineering. Those experiments you read about in high school biology class involving Gregor Mendel's cross-hybridization of different varieties of pea plants, that's not genetic modification. That's just old-fashioned plant breeding. Plant breeders are generally confined by their species. You can make crosses between organisms within a species, but it's a lot harder to make interspecific hybridizations. For that, you generally need genetic engineering. Now, to be perfectly candid, I should tell you that I have made genetically modified organisms in my laboratory. Mostly genetically modified plants, but also modified bacteria. Mostly it's been done in an educational context. I just wanted my students to know how it was done. For instance, we've played around with bioluminescence. Fireflies are bioluminescent. So we've taken the gene from fireflies that makes them glow at night and inserted them into plants to see if we could get the plants to glow. It did work in a certain way. I've also published research articles about transgenic plants. I worked with a team at University of Illinois trying to insert a gene for an edible vaccine into apple trees. The idea there was that children in low-income countries could actually vaccinate themselves by eating a few slices of apple or maybe some applesauce and vaccinate them against a very important childhood disease. So I'm not against the idea of genetic modification of organisms. But I do think it's regrettable that companies like Monsanto, which is now called Bayer, have put all their energy into making agricultural crops that are primarily resistant to herbicides or resistant to insects. Insect tolerance and herbicide tolerance, that's the trait that's mostly been put into the genetically modified corn and soybean that we're currently eating. And I'm not sure it's really been worth it and in the long run could backfire. But I'm not against all types of genetic modification of organisms. I think there are some really exciting opportunities out there, like making an edible vaccine from plants, or altering algae to make biofuel, or altering microorganisms to make biodegradable plastic. Those are ideas worth looking into. A lot of my friends will disagree with me on this point. They'll say there's just no justifiable reason to make genetically modified organisms, period. I just think there are some exciting possibilities there, but I respect their opinion. Now, one stand that my anti-GMO friends take that I also agree with has to do with labeling. I think our foods that are genetically modified should be labeled as such. It just seems like there's so many issues surrounding the adoption of genetic modification in agriculture. It's not just about biosafety when we consume the crop, but there's issues like what's the effect of these GM crops on non-target animals like insects? What's the effect on non-target plants like weeds? What's the effect of genetic modified crops on the environment? Their impact on small farmers who are just trying to make a living. Consumers might be concerned about these issues, and I personally think they should know if they're buying GM crops. I also think that labeling genetic modified food provides a great opportunity to educate the public about all these issues. Now, currently, our foods are not required to have labels on them about whether they're genetically modified or not. You might see foods in the grocery store that are labeled GMO-free, But that's entirely the decision of the manufacturer. There's no government decree about that. Now, there is one state in the United States that did try to require that all GM food be labeled as such. That state is Vermont. It was July 1, 2016 that Vermont passed a law requiring all genetically modified food sold in Vermont to be labeled as such. As soon as that happened, Congress passed a law decreeing that the federal law superseded state law on this issue of labeling. So three weeks after this law in Vermont became effective, it was eliminated by action of the federal government. I remember President Obama got a lot of criticism for signing this bill, but it did look like it was veto proof. Most of the Republicans in Congress voted for this law, and then about half of the Democrats. In my opinion, the reason Congress voted for this law that superseded the Vermont labeling law was lobbying pressure from agribusiness. The agricultural community is mostly against labeling of GM food because, basically, they're afraid that it'll scare consumers away and it'll hurt their sales. There was a very famous, or I guess you could say an infamous, scene from the U.S. Senate when they were discussing this bill Some food activists got up in the gallery of the Senate, above the Senate floor, and they dropped money onto the Senate floor. Basically, they were trying to illustrate the influence of money from the agribusiness industry on this vote. Now, because of all this public pressure, Congress did actually pass a law requiring labeling on genetically modified food shortly after this event. So we do now have some regulations about labeling. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of this story. But before we get to that, I did want to discuss this question of what do consumers think of genetically modified food? And how do consumers really feel about labeling of GM foods? If you look at the research literature, there's really a lot of mixed data about how consumers feel about eating GM food. On the one hand, there's lots of surveys showing that the majority of people will say that they prefer their food to be labeled. But a lot of times when this question comes up on ballot issues, like in California, it loses. So I wanted to tell you about a research article that was recently published in the journal called Science Advances. It's in the June 27, 2018 issue, and it's written by these two economists... One economist was at the University of Vermont where this Vermont labeling law was passed, and the other was at Purdue in Indiana. And it turns out the researcher in Vermont was in the right place at the right time because she conducted phone surveys with Vermonters both before those mandatory GMO labels were required on food as well as afterwards. Their main goal was to learn how labeling affected consumers' attitudes about genetically modified food. And so they conducted five different surveys of Vermonters over a three-year period, bracketing this time when labeling became very dominant. Even though the Vermont GM labeling law wasn't fully effective at the time of these surveys, many food companies had already started putting labels on their genetically modified food. In addition to surveying Vermonters about their feelings about GM foods and labels, they also conducted big online surveys of Americans outside of the state of Vermont for comparison. They wanted an experimental control. So altogether, they gathered data from something like 7,800 different people. One of the questions they gave on the survey to the people in Vermont was basically, How do you feel about the use of GMOs in the food supply? It was basically a multiple-choice question. The question on the national survey was a little different. It read, How concerned are you that the following pose a health hazard in the food that you eat in the next two weeks? And then they provided a list of different kinds of food, some being genetically modified and some not. So the questions they asked the Vermonters was different than the questions they asked the rest of the country. And the Vermont survey was by phone, whereas the national survey was online. But the authors defend this approach by saying that they were just interested in how the responses changed over time. They weren't really interested in comparing the people in Vermont to the rest of the country They wanted to show how these two populations were affected by GM labeling in terms of their attitudes. So the results on these surveys is the data, and they analyzed the data in different ways, but one of those ways tried to correct for the demographics of the people they were surveying. So they corrected for age, gender, race, education, whether the survey had children, their income, and their political persuasion. So what do you think? Do you think Vermonters ended up having more positive attitudes about GMOs? Or do you think they had more negative attitudes about GMOs once they started seeing more and more items in the grocery shelves with labels about whether they are GMO or not? Do you think the labeling affected their attitude about eating GMOs? I guess before I read this paper, I would have guessed that consumers' attitudes about GMOs would have been more negative once they saw lots of labels in the grocery stores. Well, the data reflected the opposite effect. The attitude of the Vermonters about GMOs actually improved after the food started getting labeling. Before GM labels were used, people averaged about 3.6 on a scale of 1 to 5, with 5 representing the strongly opposed to GMO. Whereas once they started seeing labels, the average score was reduced to 3, meaning that they neither supported or opposed GMOs. So the average score dropped from 3.6 to 3.0, meaning that they were less opposed to GMO after they started seeing labels. So the Vermonters basically shifted from being opposed to GM foods to being neutral. That translates into about a 19% reduction in opposition to GM products. Now, the Americans they surveyed who lived in places other than Vermont actually became slightly more opposed to GMOs over the course of this study. The numbers changed from 3.1 and went up to 3.2, which means they were only slightly opposed to GM foods, but it actually increased during this period. So the citizens of Vermont started off being more concerned about GMOs than the rest of the country at the beginning of the study. But by the time the study was over and the Vermonters were seeing more labels, they were actually less concerned about GMOs than the rest of the country. The researchers didn't offer a solid explanation about why people's attitudes about GMOs actually improved when they started seeing labels, but here's a quote from their paper. This national study cannot identify why this change occurred, but the findings are consistent with previous research suggesting that labels give consumers a sense of control, which has been shown to be related to risk perception. Whether labels improve a sense of control, improve trust, or operate by some other psychological mechanism, is a question we leave to future research. This is actually the first study of consumer perceptions about genetically modified food that actually involved labeling. In the past, researchers had only provided hypothetical scenarios. This was done in the real world. The authors also state in their paper, quote, The findings help provide insights into the psychology of consumers' risk perceptions that can be used in communicating the benefits and risks of genetically engineered technology to the public. I just wish someone would tell this to Monsanto, which is the biggest company making genetically modified corn and soybean, about this paper. If they knew that consumer perceptions about GMOs actually improved when their food was labeled, they might not oppose the idea of labeling so much. Whether Monsanto actually likes it or not, GMO labeling is coming down the pike. Congress passed a law back in 2016 requiring labeling of GM food, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture is currently working on guidelines for that labeling. But it's a slow process. The first step was asking the public about their attitudes, and so the USDA asked for suggestions from the general public. They received something like 112,000 different comments from farmers, consumers, agricultural companies, food companies, etc. But the USDA still hasn't fully decided what products should be labeled and which ones don't need to be labeled. It gets kind of complicated. Say you've got potato chips that are made from potatoes that are not genetically modified, but the chips were fried in soybean oil where the soybean was genetically modified. So do you label those potato chips as GM potato chips or not? From what I've read, it looks like currently the USDA would say that those chips would not have to be labeled as GM since the potato themselves were not genetically modified. But they're still deciding about that. The USDA is also testing out different kinds of labels. What would what the label actually say on a genetically modified food product? It looks like they've decided on the acronym BE. It stands for bioengineered. And so there'll be this BE label on GMO foods. And most of the labels are brightly colored in green and yellow. Sometimes they include a smiley face, which is weird, or a picture of the sun, or there's some plants behind the scene of where this BE acronym is. A lot of people are opposed to this term bioengineered BE because they think it's too cheerful, it's not serious enough. And they might be especially mystified by the term BE. And that's not B dot E dot, it's B. I myself associate B With the Beatles song, Let It Be, or with that phrase, Be All You Can Be, it also sounds pretty compatible with the Eastern way of thinking or New Age way of thinking, you know, just be. So maybe be is a little bit too mellow. But the decision's not made yet. The USDA is also considering just including a barcode for foods that are genetically modified. There might not be anything on the label about it being genetically modified, just a code number. The idea is that the consumer would have a smartphone or something they could scan that code number and that would take them to a website about whether it was bioengineered or not. This is actually the option that the food industry favors, obviously because most people are not going to bother scanning every food product they look at with their smartphone. The third labeling option that the USDA is considering is just including a single line in the ingredients part of the label it would say, contains a bioengineered food ingredient. So it'll be interesting to see how this whole labeling issue unfolds. Hey, here's a report that's recently published by the Royal Astronomical Society in Great Britain. They're announcing the first known permanent immigrant to our solar system. It's an asteroid, about two miles in diameter, and it rotates around the planet Jupiter. But what's perplexed astronomers about this asteroid is that it orbits in the opposite direction of everything else in the solar system. This is called a retrograde orbit, and it's in the opposite direction as the planets that occur in our solar system. They also conclude that this asteroid has been with us for a really long time, actually since the time of the origin of the solar system, about four and a half billion years ago. So this two-mile rock, this asteroid, was... A tourist just wandering through the universe four and a half billion years ago, and then when the solar system was being formed, wandered into the orbit of what we now call Jupiter, and just got caught up in the gravitational pull of, of Jupiter, going in the opposite direction of the other moons, and that's where it still is today. That's pretty neat. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it.
1: Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us.
0: Hey, if you want to read any of the research articles we talked about today, links can be found on Bench Talk's page at forwardradio.org. <music>